0: So if you hadn't guessed it yet, we're going to be in Leviticus chapter 23 uh, this morning. Um, I'm going to actually almost finish the chapter in our reading. This may not be a typical message for the Christmas season, but I think you'll find it very fitting uh, for what we celebrated yesterday in the birth of Jesus Christ. And let me just remind you, if you do not have a bulletin, it'd be a good week to have a bulletin because there's quite a bit of notes in there and I think really will be a big help for you following along with the sermon because we've got a bit of ground to cover this morning. So. If you found your place in Leviticus chapter 23, uh, for our reading, I'm going to pick up where brother Brad left off in verses 26. I'm going to read all the way to 43. If you would, though, join me for the reading of God's word by standing together, acknowledging that this is the word of God. He himself is speaking when we read it. So let's, um, let's read Leviticus chapter 23, starting in verse 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, also the 10th day of this 7th month shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. You shall do no work on that same day for it is the day of atonement. To make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. And any person who does any work on that same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest. And you shall afflict your souls on the ninth day of the month at evening. From evening to evening you shall celebrate your Sabbath verse 33 then the Lord spoke to Moses saying speak to the children of Israel saying the 15th day of this 7th month shall be the feast of tabernacles for 7 days to the Lord on the first day there shall be a holy convocation you shall do no customary work on it for 7 days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord on the 8th day you shall have a holy convocation and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord it is a sacred assembly and you shall do no customary work on it these are the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations to offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering and a grain offering, a sacrifice and drink offerings, everything on its day, besides the Sabbaths of the Lord, besides your gifts, besides all your vows, and besides all your free will offerings which you give to the Lord. Also on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you've gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day there shall be a Sabbath rest, and on the eighth day a Sabbath rest. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall, you shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths. That your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths. When I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord endures Let's go to Lord and thank him for his word. Gracious Father, just as we do every time we gather together, we celebrate the incarnation of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, who was given for our salvation, who was raised for our justification, that we might be right with you, that we might be reconciled to you, adopted as your sons and daughters through faith. This morning we celebrate that. And Father, we pray that as your word is expounded, that you would grant us grace to have open eyes and open ears that we might understand and your word might be applied to our lives that we might be transformed into the image of your son, Jesus Christ, that our lives might bring you glory and honor and praise. We pray this in Jesus's holy name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I think for most of us, we're aware that different holidays serve different purposes, right? Uh, Some holidays celebrate a current event. For instance, we're coming up on New Year's Day. And that celebrates the end of one year and the beginning of another. Some holidays honor a category of people. Like Labor Day, for instance, honors those who labor. I was going for, but works the same. Uh, Veterans Day honors veterans. There you go. Some holidays we know honor famous people from our past who have impacted our nation. President's Day, Martin Luther King Day. Many holidays commemorate some important event in our past, like the 4th of July, birth of a nation. But for Christians, Christmas commemorates the birth of the Messiah, and Easter recognizes Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead. For Christians, it marks the two most important days of the year. For those of us who are in Christ, these things really are an emphasis every single day of our lives, aren't they? Every single Sunday, we gather together because of what took place on Christmas and Easter. They're gospel holidays. Well, this morning, we're going to consider the holiday calendar of ancient Israel. That is what we have here in Leviticus chapter 23. Here, the Lord instructs his people to keep the Sabbath, which was a weekly celebration, and to keep seven feasts throughout the year. These feasts, like our own holidays, serve different purposes, different goals, and, but when they're considered as a whole, they communicate one clear message and if you could just boil down that one clear message to its kernel form, it is this message: The Lord saves. The feast were a constant reminder of this to God's people. And so this is how I kind of want to go about looking at this text today. I want to start by getting a little nerdy, if that's okay, and looking at the structure, just kind of how uh, I walk through the text in a good way to kind of understand the feast, just the structure of chapter 23, how this chapter is outlined. And and then we're going to look at the goals of each of the feast. I break it down just to four, not seven. And then we're going to look at the gospel because ultimately what we just read in Leviticus 23 is a proclamation of the gospel beforehand did you see it <laughs> maybe not but we'll look deeper so that's the plan and let's begin with the structure what we have here is called a chiasm the basic structure we have is a 1 2 3 2 1 structure we start with 1 sabbath Principle. We've got one Sabbath principle, and that Sabbath principle actually forms the foundation of the entire chapter. One Sabbath principle, which is the foundation. Everything is founded on this Sabbath principle. And I'm going to explain what that Sabbath principle means in just a moment. So we have one foundation here, which is the Sabbath principle. Then we have two reminders of redemption. We follow that one principle with two reminders of redemption. And when we find that the feasts themselves are bracketed, that they are in parentheses, and the brackets are the first feast of the year, which is the Passover, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, and then the last feast of the year, which is the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. And they form brackets. These are the reminders of redemption, and they're actually meant to remind the people of God's redemption, even in Old Testament Israel. The exodus out of Egypt being in Passover and God's provision in the wilderness before bringing them into the promised land in the Feast of Tabernacles. So we have one principle, two reminders of redemption that serve as the brackets, but then three holy pilgrimages that run as the backbone of these feasts. Three holy pilgrimages that run as the backbone. Beginning at the first of the year with the Feast of the Unleavened Bread... All the males in Israel were mandated to travel to the temple for a holy gathering. And then you have the Feast of Weeks, which is also a pilgrimage. And then finally, at the end of the year, the Feast of Booze or the Feast of Tabernacles. Those three holy pilgrimages form the backbone. We follow the three holy pilgrimages with two seasons. And these two seasons add balance and symmetry to this holiday calendar. In the spring you have four feasts, the Passover, Feast of the Unleavened Bread, the Feast of the First Fruits, the Feast of Weeks. Then in the second half you have three feasts, the Feast of the Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. So they're balanced, they're symmetry here, and then finally one message. One message as we've already seen and that message is that the Lord saves. One message that the Lord saves. So one principle, two reminders, three holy pilgrimages, two seasons, and one message. Each feast really serves the purpose of proclaiming the message that the Lord saves. The Lord provides that he is the holy king of Israel, good, glorious, and kind to all of his people. Okay, that's the structure, all right? That's the structure. Just a brief look of kind of how the chapter is laid out. And now what I want to do is look at the goals or purposes of those feasts so that we might better understand them. The first goal is founded in that foundational principle on which all the other feasts are based, and that is the Sabbath. What was the goal of the Sabbath? The goal was rest. That was the goal of the Sabbath, We know the Sabbath itself was actually grounded in creation. The Lord created all things in six days and then he rested. And then it's instituted in Mount Sinai as a covenant sign of the Mosaic Covenant. God's people were to observe every seventh day as a holy convocation. They were to stop their labors in order to focus on the Lord. So we see here trust demonstrated through obedience to the Sabbath. The Sabbath principle, again, it was foundational for the Israelite people. So the goal of the Sabbath was rest. The next goal was remembrance. Now we get into the feasts themselves. The goal of the Passover, Feast of the Unleavened Bread... And the Feast of Tabernacles was remembrance. And there's an overlap here, okay? All of these feasts in some way remind Israel of God's salvific work, sure. But there are three feasts specifically that focus in on reminding Israel. Their goal is remembrance. And that, again, is Passover, Feast of the Unleavened Bread, and Feast of Tabernacles, or Feast of Booths, the brackets, First was the Passover. The first feast of the year. We find this whole event recorded in Exodus chapter 12. The night before the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt. He called them to participate in the first Passover. And what were they to do? We know, right? They were to take a lamb into their home at the night of the Passover. And they were to sacrifice it. They were to take some of the blood put it on the doorpost of their house. So when the Lord came over Egypt in judgment, he would pass over those homes whose blood was put on the doorpost. The blood, the covering was to save them. They would not be judged. They would not lose their firstborn male. The Lord would pass over them. And in doing so, he brought judgment on Egypt and brought judgment by the people out of Egypt through it. He redeemed them purchased them, brought them out by his mighty right arm. That is a celebration of the Passover. Israel must never forget that the Lord had brought them out to provoke them in gratitude and confidence in the Lord's salvation because the Lord is able to save The Feast of the Unleavened Bread really goes hand in hand with the Passover. The celebration was a reminder to remove all yeast from their homes. Why? Because on the night they left, they had to leave in haste. They did not have time to let the bread rise. Instead, they were to eat unleavened bread. I love the way J. Scalar put this in his commentary on Leviticus. He says this. He says, referring to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, he said, together with the Passover, it began each year as a tremendous declaration and celebration of the Lord's deliverance. In this way, reminding Israelites to follow him with strong confidence in his salvation, great reverence for his power, and great thankfulness for his redeeming grace. Finally, under this category of remembrance, we have the Feast of Tabernacles, otherwise known as the Feast of Booths again. It's the last feast of the year. And this is a significant feast. Not one that most Christians are familiar with, though one they should be familiar with. Because it was one of the most joyous feasts for the Old Testament people of God. In fact, it's the only feast where the people are actually commanded to be joyous. The feast itself is, again, one of three pilgrimages. It, it took everyone to the temple. They gathered these temporary dwellings, called uh, sukkots, and they, they created them out of the riches of the promised land. And obviously, they're receiving this command, where? At the foot of Mount Sinai. And it's a forward-looking celebration. They're not even in the promised land yet. And yet, they're commanded to be joyous about how the Lord will deliver them. But it's to remind them that the Lord had brought them out of Egypt, that this is how they dwelled while they were in this temporary dwelling place. It was a reminder of their poor state, and yet it was a celebration of the abundance around them. They now lived in a land filled with milk and honey. That was no longer their existence, living in booths. The Lord had provided an abundance where they currently were, so it was a great celebration. So that was the second goal we see. The goal of the Sabbath, again, was rest. The goal of the reminders was remembrance. Next we see, in the next two feasts, the goal is provision. The third and fourth feast, the Feast of Firstfruits and the Feast of Weeks, these were celebrations of the Lord's abundant provision through the harvest. The Feast of Firstfruits celebrated the barley harvest. The Feast of Weeks celebrated the wheat harvest. Where the people would bring their first fruits to the Lord. The feast of weeks is the second of the three holy pilgrimages. These weren't celebrated until they reached the promised land again. Once they had moved from a nomadic people to a farming community. They celebrated the Lord's rich provision. And they declared the Lord was worthy of their very best. Could you just imagine, by the way, being at the foot of Mount Sinai and having the Lord tell you that you're going to celebrate holidays and feasts when you're currently living in the wilderness? right? That that he says you're going to celebrate the fact that you were here and you're going to remember the fact that you're here. And not only that, you're going to be such a blessed community that you're actually going to celebrate uh, two feasts of harvest while you're in the wilderness eating manna, by the way yeah, of course, he's calling them to faith, isn't he? He's calling and reminding them of his provision. And so, they celebrated his division, declaring that he was worthy of their very best. The final goal, seeing in the only two feasts we haven't covered, which are the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement, would be, spoiler alert, the goal is atonement. (laughs) In the seventh month you have a feast of the trumpets. And get this. This is what would happen is, is the trumpets sounded through Israel in order to gain Israel's attention. The whole feast of trumpets was to prepare them for the quickly approaching day of atonement. It was to call the people to repentance, to make the people aware that soon they would celebrate the most solemnest of days on the day of atonement. In fact, the ten days between the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement became known as the Days of Awe. It was an opportunity to make restitutions for any wrongs committed. It was a time of reconciliation. It was a time to seek forgiveness and then followed the Day of Atonement itself. The Day of Atonement was a day of cleansing. We looked at that extensively a couple years ago where the scapegoat had the sins of the community placed upon him. And those sins were carried far away. The sin offering had shed its blood and ordered to cleanse the Holy of Holies. The one day of year where the high priest enters into that most holy place and order to cleanse the sanctuary, the altar, and all the camp of Israel. This was a do-over, if you will. The people were called to repent of their sin against the Lord and trust in his provision of atonement. Okay, so that's really the feast in a nutshell. As many as there are, as complicated as it can seem to follow up with that, that's a very basic outline of all the feasts we find in Leviticus chapter 23. All based upon the foundation, again, of the Sabbath principle. Built on top of that are these seven feasts. That's the basic outline. But again, what's incredible about this is that this is actually a declaration of the gospel beforehand. The Lord spoke to the people on Mount Sinai, telling them, this is how you are to celebrate what I have done and what I'm going to do among you. And as he does it, he lines out the very way that Jesus Christ would save his people over a thousand years before that even takes place. See, that would be an incredible story if someone had just came up with this, wouldn't it? But the fact that these are real events taking place in history is nothing short of miraculous. So you want to see it? You want to see it? You want to see the gospel declared in Leviticus chapter 23? Well, let's get to it. Let's see the gospel proclaimed beforehand in the feast of the Lord. The chapter starts, remember, with this mandate. One verse that says, you guys are going to practice the Sabbath. And in a nutshell, the Sabbath means holy convocation and resting. And we know that from the rest of Scripture. That the Sabbath actually began again at creation. And it, as we've seen, it's actually the goal of creation. The Lord created everything in six days. Then he sat down in his recliner because he was just tuckered out. No, that's not what it means. What does it mean that the Lord rested? It means he sat down because his work was complete. He took over as the sovereign Lord over all creation, having completed his very good work. Now it's Adam's turn. Adam was also to rest. Adam was created in a covenant relationship with the Lord, and he was given the task to walk in faith and walk in obedience to the Lord. And after doing so, he would also ascend to an earthly throne to rule over all creation, entering that Sabbath rest for which he was created. But as we know, both from the testimony of Scripture and from looking around our world, Adam failed the task. Adam did not ascend to the throne. Instead, he abdicated the throne. Adam did not enter into the rest of the Lord. Instead, he brought upon himself and all of creation a curse that is being lived out every single day. It's seen in every single headline in the news. It's very obvious to any eye that takes a superficial look at the world around us. There is no rest, <laughs> Would you define this place as a restful place? No, there's no rest here. Not now, not here. But in God's redemptive plan, he did not abandon his people. But instead, he raises up Israel. Israel was a new Adam who was to enter into God's rest. The rest that Israel was to enter was the promised land. But we also know that Israel failed, didn't they? It's stated explicitly in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 15 through 19. I'm going to read that for you. It says this. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses... Now, with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? Of course, referring to that first generation of Israelites, all but Caleb and Joshua. Verse 18 says, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Now, did they eventually come into the promised land? Yes, they did. But but it was only some level of victory because they never actually entered into the Sabbath rest of the Lord. God would not have spoken of another day as he does later in Hebrews chapter 4 like this. In verses 8 through 10 he says, For if Joshua had actually given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has also ceased from his works as God did from his. We're here this morning for the same reason we gather every Sunday morning. Because there is actually one who entered the Sabbath rest. His name is Jesus Christ. The incarnate God actually entered into his Sabbath rest. Think of it in these terms. Sabbath rest is accomplishing that which man was created to accomplish. Entering into God's rest. Completing the task. Never again to have to merit anything before God. So as we read in Hebrews 10 verse 12 speaking of Jesus. It says, but this man after He had offered one sacrifice for sins forever. What did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God. That is the Sabbath rest, friends. And that's what we see the gospel proclaimed in this feast. We see it because Christ is our Sabbath rest. He is. The only way that you and I will enter into the rest which we were created to enjoy will be through the work of Jesus Christ. When he had offered for one time that sacrifice which God required, he ascended to heaven to the right hand of God and took a seat. Why? Because he is done. It is finished. He entered the Sabbath rest. Jesus has become the Sabbath rest so that in in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 14, we can actually read, for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. That is, we rest in him. So Sam Storms, in his book, Kingdom Come, which is actually a book I began to read because our Sunday school class is about to go through Revelation. He's correct when he writes this. He says, we cease from our labors not by resting physically one day in seven, but by resting spiritually every day and forever in Christ by faith alone. We experience God's true Sabbath rest, not by taking off from work one day in seven, but by placing our faith in the saving work of Jesus. To experience God's Sabbath rest, therefore, is to cease from those works of righteousness by which we were seeking to be justified. The New Testament fulfillment of the Old Testament Sabbath is not one day in seven of physical rest, but an eternity of spiritual rest through faith in the work of Christ. As Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6, God has said he, he has raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So, can you believe this friends? If you're in Christ, you have actually been seated with him. You have entered his rest because he is your Sabbath rest. Here that is. It's the foundation through which we see all the rest of the feast, and I will move way quicker now, so don't worry, okay? Let's go on. The Passover or Feast of Unleavened Bread. We see in the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread that Christ is our Passover sacrifice. Christ is our Passover sacrifice. Almost all of us are probably familiar with the correlation between the Passover and the work of Christ, right? It is almost unavoidable if you've read the New Testament. Jesus comes to Jerusalem to offer his life during the Passover. The timing is made clear. In fact, he institutes the Lord's Supper on the night of the Passover. And as he celebrates the Passover with his disciples, he exchanges one feast for another. Uh, The Lord's Supper is what you will practice because it's my body, not a lamb, that will be broken. It's my blood, not the blood of a lamb, that will be shed. It's my blood, not the blood of the lamb, that will cover you when the second death passes over. So the Passover, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they they fade. They are a shadow and the reality is Christ. That's why Paul could actually say in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, he says, For indeed Christ... Our Passover was sacrificed for us. He has accomplished our redemption. That's good news, friends. The second death will pass over those who belong to Christ. So we rest in him. And so if the Passover is obvious, well, what about the other feast? What about the feast of the first fruits? Maybe a little less obvious. But when you really think about what it is and what has happened, it becomes crystal clear again. The Feast of the First Fruits was celebrated the first day after the Sabbath. After the barley harvest, the first fruits were brought. What they refer to as the eighth day, a new creation day, a day of celebrating the Lord's provision. Well, when did Jesus rise from the dead? The first day after the Sabbath, otherwise known as Sunday. <laughs> So so what does Paul write in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20? He says this, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming see the gospel is proclaimed very clearly through the feast of the first fruits friends because Christ is our first fruits that's who Christ is it's only because Christ has been raised in an unperishable imperishable spiritual body that that we will know what it's like to have an imperishable spiritual body you know that right In our glorification, our bodies will be perfected and Christ is the first fruits of that. The first fruits, by the way, it guarantees the rest of the harvest. It is a first fruit of a much larger harvest. So it is with Christ. We celebrate because the first fruits, that is Christ's resurrection, actually guarantees our resurrection. So as Paul concludes... He says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We rest in that. All right, we're back to a little bit more of an obvious one. The Feast of Weeks. What does that have to do with Jesus? What does the Feast of Weeks have to do with Jesus? Well, do you know what else the Feast of Weeks is called? Pentecost. It was another celebration of first fruits, but not barley this time. But weeks, get this—a uh, wheat. Sorry, get this: seven weeks after plus one day equals fifty. Pentecost is the Greek word for fifty. Seven Sabbaths after the first fruits, the Pentecost is celebrated. So Jesus after he ascends into heaven, he and the Father send the first fruits of the Spirit. That's how we see the gospel proclaimed here is Christ sends the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. Now are we all familiar with that story in Acts, right? Holy Spirit falls on the church, the first fruits are poured out and the church has life breathed into it. The church becomes the church because it's filled with the Spirit. Don't miss this. Have you ever thought about this? As soon as Jesus ascended into heaven, the first thing he could have done that very first hour was send the Spirit. What was he waiting for? For Pentecost. (laughs) So that we wouldn't miss that Leviticus 23 is actually the proclamation of the gospel beforehand. Portrayed so that his people would not miss the coming of Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul actually writes this in Romans chapter 8 verse 23, just so you don't think that I'm making this up. He says, not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. The, The point's clear here. The Holy Spirit is also the first fruits of a much larger harvest, You and I, we we groan inwardly because we have not yet received all that God has in store for his people. Did you know that's really why you groan if you're a child of God? (laughs) Because you long for what he has and he's promised to give it to you. It is not yet ours in its fulfillment, though, but we have the first fruits. And we celebrate that those who trust in Christ alone for their salvation have received the greatest gift man can ever receive—God's Spirit dwelling within him, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so, the first fruits have have shed abroad in our hearts. The harvest, therefore, is certain. There will be more in store. So that's the spring feast. We're on to the fall feast. And now here it gets really good. I want you to pay attention to this. The feast of trumpets. What was that? What is the feast of trumpets for Old Testament Israel? The feast of trumpets was a call to pay attention. Right? The feast of trumpets was a call to, to say, hey, listen, there is a day quickly approaching. And it's the day of atonement. In fact, how this was practiced is you would have the initial blast of the horn. A long, clear blast followed By a sound from the horn that was titled in Hebrew, broken. Three broken sounds. Three short blasts. I really wanted to invite Chris Drum to come do this for us. But I thought that he probably was busy. Next came a series of very short blasts. No less than nine equaling the same length of the first. They call this one alarm. Because the last blast is coming. It lasted as long as the person had air in his lungs. Friends, how do we see the gospel in this? Well, the feast of the trumpets is where we are right now. Did you know that? If you're thinking in terms of the gospel, Christ has blown the first three blasts, but we continue to sound that alarm. We continue to proclaim the world is broken, it's separated from God, and without hope apart from Christ. Repent and believe because the last trumpet will sound, and when it does, it'll be too late. This right now is the day of trumpets. Christ blew the trumpet and we continue the call. Christ blew the trumpet and we continue the call. It's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 2, Behold now is the accepted time. Behold now is the day of salvation. There is a day quickly approaching where Christ will come and cleanse all of his people of their sin. That's what's pictured in the Day of Atonement. You know, when we think about the Day of Atonement, it's, it's right to see that fulfilled in the sacrifice of Christ, right? Obviously, that's, that's clear. Christ dying and atoning for the sins of his people. But you know, there's a very real way where we also need to look at the Day of Atonement being completely fulfilled at the Lord's return. Because the Day of Atonement really was about cleansing Israel of their sins, this world that God created has not yet been cleansed, has it? But friends, there's coming a day where Christ will return and this world will be cleansed of all its brokenness and sin. And so we, as the trumpet sounders, are sounding the alarm that that day is coming quickly. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 21, he says, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God for the creation was subjected to futility not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God see the second coming will be the ultimate day of atonement for the children of God where the entire earthly sanctuary, even the world itself will be cleansed because Christ will cleanse the whole creation. That leaves us with one more, and it's my favorite, the feast of tabernacles or the feast of booths, whatever you want to call it there. You can call it either one. In Israel again, this was the climactic feast of the entire calendar. This was the most popular and joyous occasion of the year. It's incredible, really, when you think that all that's packed into this, like the Passover, the connection between the Feast of Tabernacles and Christ, it is made absolutely explicit in the New Testament. In fact, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and and turn to John chapter 7 really quickly. I just want to show you one verse, and I want your eyes on it because it's just so beautiful. Jesus used the opportunity for the Feast of Tabernacles to proclaim that he himself is the Messiah, that he's the one, indeed, who all have been waiting for. So here's what happens in John 7. It was the final day of the feast. Uh, Jesus went into the feast in Jerusalem and they, they had this ceremony where they started at the Pool of Siloam. And a huge throng of people would, would gather and a priest with a, with a golden pitcher would dip the water out of the pool and they would lead this great parade through Jerusalem into the temple where people would be celebrating and the water would then be poured out on the base of the altar and there was much Jubilation and celebration and the procession proceeded to the temple. Well, Jesus there in the midst of them, he, he waits until the very end after the water has been poured out. Again, signifying a reminder of God's provision in the wilderness when he provided water to his people through the rock. He waits until this pinnacle moment and then he proclaims to them, John seven thirty seven and 38. If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now don't miss this. Jesus is saying that this feast of tabernacles and all that it represents is about me. I'm the rock in the desert. I'm the one that provides the water. And those who trust in him will have streams of living water flow from them. Now, now that's incredible, but you really have to read it in its context of what most of the original readers would have saw. And that's where Zechariah chapter 14 comes to play. I won't have you turn there. It's going to be on the screens, but I want your eyes on the screens and listening to this because it's very important because Zechariah, in his book, he's, he's prophesying about the last days. The day of the Lord. He has this to say in Zechariah 14.4. He says, And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two, from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north, and half toward the south." So get this, the Lord himself on the Mount of Olives. Who do you think he's talking about there? Sunday school answer is Jesus. It's okay. Remember, we talked about responding. We talked about that last week, but that was last week. uh, So I forgot to remind you. So when that day comes, Jesus himself standing on the Mount of Olives, what will be the result? Look down at verse 8 of Zechariah 14. It says, and in that day shall be the living waters shall flow from Jerusalem. Half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter, it shall occur. On that day, when the Lord stands on Mount Olives, living waters will flow out from Jerusalem to the seas. In other words, to the ends of the earth. And remember what Jesus proclaimed back in John 7. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He believes in me as the scriptures has said, out of this heart will flow rivers of living water. And then right there in Zechariah, prophesied a hundred years before the coming of Christ. That is what's taking place. Now stay with me. You still with me? Alright, it gets better It gets better because Zechariah goes on, and and in Zechariah 14, he starts talking about all these wars that are going to take place, this desolation, and it's actually pretty gruesome language. Things get really, really bad, but when all that's over, in verse 16 of chapter 14, here's what he says. He says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. See, that is the final celebration. Why? Because in Old Testament Israel, it was the celebrations of celebration. They were celebrating being in the promised land, entering into that symbolic rest in the Lord. They were celebrating their relationship with the Lord, that they were no longer in this temporary dwelling, that they were permanent residents, friends. And at the end, how we see the gospel here is because Christ and his people will celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles forever. Forever! Now, we don't celebrate it yet, right? But We long for this day. And what is it that we'll be celebrating? Shedding these temporary residencies and the resurrection of our bodies and entering into the fullness of God's rest. Entering to a fully cleansed heaven and earth where we will be complete, whole, and unblemished and in a complete, whole, and unblemished relationship with our Lord and Savior. That is what Leviticus 23 ultimately teaches the people of God. See, in its original context, it was a preparation for this very thing. It was to be taught in Israel to be prepared for the coming one who would shed his blood so that they might have their sins covered. The Passover would become the sacrifice of Christ, our Passover lamb. The feast of firstfruits would someday be replaced by the fruits of Christ. That the Feast of Weeks would be replaced with the celebration of the Holy Spirit. The Feast of Trumpets would be replaced by the call of the gospel going out to the ends of the earth, warning people that there's a Day of Atonement quickly upon the earth coming to do its final cleansing. And finally, the people of God have the Feast of Tabernacles to look forward to in a renewed heaven and earth with imperishable, glorified, spiritual bodies. How beautiful. But I want to conclude with this. Okay, that's a lot of information. That's pretty cool. Or maybe it's super nerdy, not cool, whatever your thoughts are. Um, But how do we respond to that? What do we do with that? What's the purpose of this? Why would we look at this? Because listen, I'm not saying that this is just, wow, it's a cool, neat story to look in Leviticus 23. These, These things actually took place, and they took place with a purpose. And these things, they actually demand a response from us. In fact, a lack of a response is a response. That's one choice. You can respond by saying, well, that's really nice, but it's not for me, though. I reject it. I'll take my chances in a house without the blood of Christ over it on the day the death passes over. And we'll see how that goes. This is the gospel, and therefore it is good news And the response is, it's a call for all who hear it to repent and believe the gospel. To actually say, I see the picture and realize that Christ is exactly who he said he is. That he has done exactly what he said he will do. And to cry out to the Lord for salvation. To come under the blood of Christ and to be cleansed. To cry out for the Holy Spirit, the first fruits of that great reward that awaits us to believe, repent, and live for Christ. That is the only proper response. Because friends, a day is coming when that last trumpet will sound. And those who are not covered by the blood of Christ will perish apart from it. And it is my utmost desire to have each and every one of you in this room join me at the Feast of Tabernacles for all eternity. Oh, what a joyous celebration that will be. You looking forward to that? Friends, if you're not, let me tell you, if you're not looking forward to it, it's because you're not sure you got the blood over the door. (laughs) you're not sure whether or not Christ's blood has actually covered you because you're not sure whether or not you've really repented and trusted in the finished work of Jesus Christ for your sins. If you're not sure, please don't leave this place without telling somebody. Please hear the gospel and hear the good news of grace that this has always been the plan for Christ to come and redeem his people. Praise God for his grace. Would you stand with me as we close? Gracious Father, how great your knowledge and your power, how, how great you are, Lord, just in the beauty of orchestrating all things to reveal them in your written word, bringing to the past in time and in space, bringing your son into the world when the time was full, that he might become for us the Passover sacrifice, that he might be raised as our first fruits of a much greater harvest. Harvest that will come before the great day, the Feast of Tabernacles, when we celebrate your full and completed redemption. Father, help us to be faithful proclaimers and hearer of the gospel. Lord, help us to blast the trumpets that now sound. Grant us the grace, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.